Hi and welcome everyone. My name is Madeline King and I'm the operations manager here at the IMA. Um, I also, um, when I'm not here, I work on another project um, called the Fashion Archives, which I co-direct with Nadi Buick, who's here today as well. Um, it's an online publication and a curatorial outfit, and we're currently actually working on a, a book that will be, uh, the deadline for that is imminent, so if I look a bit tired, that's why. Um, but it will be coming out before the end of the year. It's called Remotely Fashionable. So because of my background and interests in fashion as well as contemporary art, I thought this would be a great opportunity to sort of bring this fashion perspective to the two exhibitions that we've currently got on, and I hope you've had a chance to have a look at them. So both Dale Harding's white-collared exhibition here in the green room and Patrick Staff's exhibition, The Foundation, aren't about fashion or dress, but fashion does figure heavily in both of them. What's really fascinating to me about how these two exhibitions come together around dress is that they both use very specific and sensual materials to evoke pleasure and pain to produce two very different affects and meanings. Both artists share interests in ideas of genealogy, identity, memory, and social change, and fashion and dress is an ideal vehicle to convey this. I think gender is important to both of their works, but for Dale, issues of race are central, and for Patrick, it's sexuality. In Dale's work, he uses the delicate textiles of lace to evoke fragility and vulnerability, as well as refinement and social propriety, the lace color being a marker of the social hierarchy in 19th century and early 20th century colonial households. Um, where the domestic servant is expected to reflect the aspirations of class held by its employers. This is contrasted with his use of the tough materials of rawhide and metal buckles to suggest violence, confinement, and control. Dale is using these materials of dress to talk about the lived experience of his matrilineal family as domestic servants. Aboriginal women and, importantly, Aboriginal girls under a government-sanctioned program of systematic control and forced labour carried out in reserves such as the one at Warrabinda near Rockhampton that he refers specifically to in that work. So his work speaks to this profound sense of pain and a loss of freedom and the materials of dress that he uses makes us think about those experiences in this very visceral bodily way. And I think through these items of dress, we can imagine how they must feel abrasive against the skin, how they must constrict our breath and movement, how wearing someone else's uniform to demarcate our lowly place in the social order must shape our sense of self. Consider then how Patrick Staff uses quite similar materials, leather, rubber, chain, these materials too evoke pain, but it's a very different pain to the one Dale Harding is talking about. These materials are meant to represent the pleasurable kind of pain, the desirable, hopefully consensual pain of fetish. I want today to tease out what's behind these use of materials and items of dress where they've come from in history and see how two sets of very similar materials have come to represent such vastly different sensual experiences. 
I'm going to be using fashion history and theory to shed light on this, looking specifically at the history of Indigenous and European dress in colonial Australia to inform the work of Dale Harding, and the history of gay subcultural dress going back as far as the 18th century to inform the work of Patrick Staff. So Dale Harding's exhibition, White Collared, actually directly appropriates found items of dress, lace collars, and repositions them to invite new meanings. He refers to the objects in the exhibition as imagined artifacts, resembling museum objects that would tell a story that is otherwise not frequently spoken of. In this case, the forced domestic servitude of Aboriginal women and girls. This is kind of what I find so compelling about Dale's work, that he tells the story of women who have been frequently overlooked in history, and then he does it through dress, because it's fashion's association with women, and by extension, frivolity and irrationality that are seen be trivialized and not taken seriously. So he's combining the overlooked stories of women with the undermined medium of dress, and I think he does this with considerable compassion and sensitivity to both. When Dale here inverts the lace collars in this white-colored series, turning them upside down so the opening uh, is at the bottom rather than at the top at the nape of the neck, they start to resemble another item of dress altogether, and as you can probably see, it's headdress. This is, of course, no mistake. For Dale, this is a reference to traditional headdress as well as their parallels, as he tells me, in spiritual phenomenon around the head, such as halos in many art traditions. In fact, he told me about an American colonial-style collar he was working with that so closely resembled the Torres Strait Islander headdress, the dari, originally worn by warriors in battle, that he chose to remove it from the work. For Dale, the combination of the male dari with women's colonial dress opened the work up to misunderstandings around men's business and women's business, which he felt that he couldn't speak for. The collars also resemble the headdress seen in Wanjina, which are the Aboriginal spiritual figures depicted around the northwest sort of Kimberley region, so much so that he didn't actually nearly show a similar set of collars made for the String Theory exhibition at the MCA, um, just to avoid causing offence, which I think is quite remarkable. The colours themselves vary in age and origin as they were quite a common item of dress in much of the 19th and early 20th centuries. This is a very beautiful portrait of an Aboriginal domestic servant held in the John Oxley Library collection from 1911. Um, and this image accompanied an article um, about Indigenous dress that we published on the Fashion Archives. It's good to keep in mind with studio, with studio portraits like these that they're not always great or reliable indicators of what people wore on a day-to-day -day basis because inevitably people would dress very differently for the camera. But you can see how her dress is in keeping with the Edwardian fashions of the period. She's got the elaborate picture hat, the gloves, and the delicate white work embroidery on her dress. I think the age appearance of the lace in the white collared works as well calls to mind the traditional materials like grass reeds that are used to make necklaces and headdresses in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, uh, 
crafts and dress. In other works, Dales used Hessian an example, to evoke his family's stories of being forced to wear Hessian sacks in the girls' dormitories at reserves such as Warabinda. Hessians that most abrasive and lowly of materials, we see it as fit only really to transport produce and certainly not intended for dress. These little shirts or smocks that he's produced with the British insignia embroidered, embroidered on them produce quite a number of different links to dress for me. First, and I think most obviously, it's the government-issued ration clothing that would be distributed in Aboriginal missions and reserves and government depots. But I think the way he so beautifully embroidered it and placed it where we'd normally expect to find um, a brand logo and an item of clothing gives it this sort of other fashion reading for me. Um, to me, this insignia really reminds me of um, Vivian Westwood's orb logo, although it's probably it's vice versa that her logo appropriates the British insignia. Um, and I think combined with this kind of overall effect of this punk aesthetic pulls it a bit into the realm of fashion. And I think that might seem to trivialise the gravity of what the works speak about, but actually for me this doesn't detract from the story of those girls in the dormitories, but it makes it even more powerful at that moment when you think of it as something you might actually pull over your head and then imagine that unpleasant sensation of the hessian dragging against your skin. It also makes me think of the innovative ways that Aboriginal people in the late 19th century would incorporate European materials into customary dress and domestic objects. Kate Kahn, in a piece about Aboriginal dress in North Queensland, described how Aboriginal women at Atherton used to unpick the blue and yellow stripes down the centre and sides of government blankets and weave the threads into their bags and baskets. I'll move on now to discuss Patrick Staff's work. This is a still from the film that's showing in Gallery 3. Um, and in particular, the, the film which centres on the Thomas Finland Foundation, which is an organisation to set up, um, set up to preserve and share the work of the legendary 20th century gay pornographer Thomas Finland. To do this, I want to talk a little bit about the relationship between clothing and fetish. If you've worked walked through that rubber curtain into Patrick's installation and film, you'll agree that fetish is an important concept in the work. But it's also worth discussing because the idea of imbuing particular articles of dress with the power of obsessive desire is a concept that applies to fashion and material culture more broadly. Fetish can imply a magical quality. The word has religious origins relating to worshipping man-made objects as idols. Its modern meaning from the 19th century expands to the irrational worship of any object or material and, of course, to erotic fetishism. In fact, fetishism as a distinct sexual phenomenon appeared only in the second half of the 19th century. It's a changing ideas that's developed in tandem with attitudes towards sexuality as well as seasonal variations in fashion. The leading American fashion scholar Valerie Steele explains, and I quote, there have been both changes and continuities in the choice of fetish fashions and fabrics. 
corsets have long since disappeared from mainstream fashion, but they retain an important role in fetishism and have re-emerged in avant-garde fashion. Women's underwear and high-heeled shoes have long been among the most popular garments chose, chosen as fetishes, but there is also evidence that uniforms, boots, and even Levi's appeal to both male and female subjects. The materials that attract fetishists have also evolved over time, with silk and fur tending to be eclipsed by leather and rubber. There have been many fashion designers, particularly, let's say, from the 1970s onwards, who were drawing fetish styles and materials into a high fashion context, some of the more obvious ones being Jean-Paul Gaultier, Thierry Mugler, Vivian Westwood. They were using fetish materials such as rubber, leather, chain, underwear as outerwear, and in particular, petticoats and corsets and extreme high heel shoes, military elements such as buckles, brass buttons, and combat boots. I think it's important to point out that high fashion in these instances takes on the style, if not the spirit, of fetishism. Fashion is notorious for its ability to borrow an aesthetic but let go of its original meaning. And for this reason, I think it's safe to assume that the appeal of fetish looks and materials are different for fetishists as they are for fashion consumers, perhaps transforming an object of sexual fetish into one of commodity fetish. Up until when Valerie still wrote her influential book, Fetish, Fashion, Sex and Power, in 1996, the specific, the specific materials and articles of fetish fashion had not been considered worthy of special attention. Nobody had seen the value in understanding why a certain garment would be selected as the object of one enthusiast's desire, as many fetishists prefer to be known, but not another's. As she points out, most scholars have lumped together the many objects of special devotion as though it made no difference whether an individual chose high heel pumps or combat boots, a silk petticoat, or a leather jacket. But of course, Valerie Steele would see the importance of understanding the nuances that each material and garment present for the same reason I think it's worth exploring why rawhide and buckles in Dale's work represent pain on the one hand, and leather and chain in Patrick's work represents pleasure on the other. Fashion is, of course, a symbolic system, and I think it's complex set of codes and signifiers help us to understand these subtle differences as well as the overlaps in each of the works. So I think to help us decode the meaning of clothing worn by the subjects of both Patrick Staff film and the Tom of Finland drawings featured within it, we need a little background on menswear. So while women's wear had seen significant change, particularly in the 19th and 20th centuries, where the silhouette of women's clothing underwent dramatic fluctuations, for the past 200 years or so, men's wear has remained more or less static. The sober ensemble of pants, shirt, and flat shoes or boots loosely enveloping the body to allow for movement has been pretty consistent over this period. This is a re fairly recent development, however, as previously menswear uh, was much more changeable, not to mention very flamboyant. What I think makes menswear so interesting is that the extremely subtle stylistic changes that have happened in the past 200 years can carry such symbolic power. And as we'll see in the case of subcultural fashions of gay men in the 18th to 20th centuries, 
they carry erotic charge. As fashion theorist Anne Hollander concludes in her seminal 1995 book, Sex and Suits, by staying the same while undergoing constant internal changes, male tailoring acquired more virtue and new value throughout its life instead of losing force or currency. By not va vanishing, but instead shifting meaning, tailored suits have proved themselves infinitely dynamic, possessed of their own fashionable energy. So, Thomas Finland was perhaps the most influential figure in the visual representation of gay men and in how gay men both dressed and perceived themselves in the mid to late 20th century. His drawings became iconic after first appearing in the American Physique Pictorial. Here's one of his covers from the 1950s. He depicted hyper-masculine and importantly smiling gay men often wearing tight pants of leather or denim, workwear such as plaid shirts, shiny dominating leather boots, and other items borrowed from military uniforms. What appeared initially as almost a fantasy costume for gay men inspired by many broader social and cultural influences, including World War II, actually became sartorial reality and in fact had a huge influence on fashion for a number of decades. There was even a Tom of Finland clothing company in the 1990s and early 2000s, which I think goes to show the length and influence of this legacy. In this fascinating feedback loop between fashion and social change, the imagery that Tom was producing fed what men were wearing, which fed Tom's work, and so on. I really struggled to find this documented elsewhere in the literature, but it's a phenomenon that happens often in fashion. And it's beautifully articulated by a member of the Tom of Finland Foundation, S.R. Sharp, in Patrick Staff's upcoming book, um, called, also called The Foundation. Sharp says, I think the phenomenon of Tom is that he was chronicling an age, but he was also creating the age. There was a burgeoning leather, the leather scene, and he was right there at the very beginning in the UK. So he was drawing these kind of World War II pilots manifesting into bikers. He was also, with his own leather, creating these fetish uniforms that were very personal for him. And so they manifested in his drawings. Guys would see his drawings, go to his tailor and say, I want my pants to look just like that. And his tailor would make him these Tom-inspired pants. Then a friend of his would take a picture wearing the Tom-inspired pants and he would send it to Tom, who in turn would probably rework that photograph into another drawing. So he was chronicling and creating the time at the same time, and that was really unparalleled. Prior to gay liberation in the 1970s, subtle signs and codes were needed to communicate within the gay community. So of course, fashion was really integral to this. As an aside, it's worth bearing in mind that any professed interest by a man in fashion has traditionally marked him out as gay. From the 1960s, with the countercultural movement and sexual liberation, hypermasculine clothing was part of a conscious move to redefine the gay man as masculine in a pushback against the notion of homosexuality as being effeminate. 
The butch archetypes of the biker, the cowboy, the lumberjack were embraced in fashion and gay subculture reflected an attraction to working class men, hence the blue collar garb and rebelliousness, hence the biker and leatherman look. This image of Marlon Brando in The Wild Ones was influential in defining this ultra-masculine look back in 1953, having, of course, undergone the camp treatment of Hollywood costuming, whose exaggerations and refinement no doubt helped popularise its appeal, but found its way back into subcultural dress of biker gangs. Brando also popularised the tight-fitting white T-shirt in the 1950s, presenting underwear as outerwear for men, as petticoats and corsets in fashion had done for women. Boots are essential to the cowboy and leatherman archetypes. In fetish terms, boots like high heel shoes are phallic symbols, but unlike heels, they represent ultra-masculinity. They're also associated with a master-slave dynamic, as in lick my boots, and being low to the ground, they take on a dirtiness and an animalistic quality. Shiny black leather boots in particular have fetish appeal for their artfulness and perfection prized since the 19th century. In the case of Tom and Fid of Finland's depiction of boots and other immaculate military regalia, much have been, has been made of the presence of Nazi German soldiers in Finland, where he was during World War II, whose uniforms featured knee-high leather boots and leather trench coats. In World War I, the German aviators gave us the leather bomber jacket. Military uniforms are also powerful because they symbolize hierarchy. Tom of Finland said, and I think this is amazing, sometimes the attraction to the uniform is so powerful in me that I feel as, as if I am making love to the clothes and the man inside them is just a sort of animated display rack. But I think we don't appreciate just how radically different this butch look was until we contrast it with the effeminate stereotypes that dominated the popular imaginary of gay men up until this point. We can only go back so far in history because gay subcultures arose visibly only in the 18th century, although, of course, there were subcultures and networks before this time. But prior to this, the clothing of gay men was not so clearly differentiated because, quite simply, people didn't perceive of sexual identity in the same way. Valerie Steele points this out in saying that throughout the most of recording, most of recorded history, people did not think of themselves as being gay or straight or bisexual. They simply engaged in certain sexual acts. As long as people didn't perceive themselves as having a particular sexual identity, they wore the same clothing as everyone else of their gender, age, and class. Of course, we don't know how all gay men of the 18th century dressed, but art, cartoons, writing, and correspondence from this period give us some clues as to the dress of effeminate men of this period. And of course, their foppishness doesn't necessarily indicate that they were gay. But that being said, we know that there were two key subcultures at this time known as the Mollies and the Macaronis. Mollies dressed in women's clothing, some to look like milkmaids and shepherdesses. Macaronis were sexually ambiguous and this was widely mocked in caricatures. 
There was also the subculture of the man milliner. These were men who had taken up a trade that was that, at that time exclusively the preserve of women, which of course is millinery. The way that the man milliner was described at the time res resembles closely the modern stereotype of the gay male fashion designer. He was a highly affected man with a boastful authority on women's clothing. By the 19th century, views on sexual identity had changed in a major way that more closely resembles a modern idea of homosexuality. Steele explains that over the course of the 19th century, the concept of sodomy as a sinful behavior, potentially punishable by death, gradually gave way to the medico-legal concept of homosexuality or inversion as a sexual and gender identity. This resulted both in a new era of repression marked by the pathologizing of inverts and in the rise of the first homosexual liberation movements. The 19th century had the gay subculture of the fairy with a very particular dress code. They were described in the 1870s as wearing very tight trousers, a short jacket, a boldly striped necktie, as well as curled hair and a funny little hat. And of course, in the latter part of the 19th century, one of the most visible men of style was Oscar Wilde. He was considered to be a dandy and an aesthete. His garb included velvet coats, knee breeches not seen since the previous century, and flamboyant adornments of silky flowy ties and large floral boutonnieres. The green carnation being a favorite because green represented to Wilde, and I quote, a subtle artistic temperament and a laxity, if not a decadence, of morals. I think we can easily read the word artistic here as code for homosexuality. And I'm reminded again of Patrick Staff's interview with S.R. Sharp, um, who said, my mother always identified me identified me as her artistic son, which I thought was a great euphemism, right? Because I was a bit artistic, but it was, you know, we have an artistic boy. The look for gay men in post-gay liberation, and we're talking here mostly in America, but also major cities in the UK, Europe, and here in Australia, became known as the clone. It was ostensibly an exaggeration of the heterosexual masculine appearance. Sean Cole writes in A Queer History of Fashion that this 1970s look adopted conventional blue-collar work clothing and rejected the nonchalance with which these garments were worn by straight men. I think that's a great way of putting it. One media outlet, outlet sorry, reported on the clones saying, if they were once stereotyped as Julian and Shandy, they are now Biff and Brad coming on like everyone's idea of the perfect ale-swilling outback waller from Australia. Isn't that great? The, the look had very specific codes. Denim wasn't just any denim. It was always Levi's 501s. And in addition to getting the right clothes, worn with the right hair, it's cropped hair and mustaches, of course, and the right attitude, the body was really key to giving these straight styles gay erotic charge. Pants and tees were worn tight to sexualize the clothing and show off a physique perfected at the gym. Importantly, the objective here was not to adopt a masculine look in order to pass as straight, but instead to subvert the assumption 
that masculinity is a corollary of heterosexuality. The look of a lumberjack, for example, was so well coordinated, so well put together as to signify a lumberjack or a camp idea of one, um, but clearly not be the clothes of an actual working lumberjack. This exaggeration of masculinity served to confuse straight men, and in many instances may have helped gay, gay men to evade their scrutiny and aggression. Interestingly, the dominant masculine culture, I suppose as dominant cultures are want to do, reappropriated this look. As Sean Cole explains, this style of dress in turn was readopted in its queered, parodic form by straight men who started wearing the crew cuts, the mustaches, the 501s, and the Timberland boots. It's no surprise, I think, that once straight mainstream culture cannibalized this look, it was the beginning of the end for the clone. Writing in the 1990s, Anne Hollander marveled at the way that this look had imbued men's dress with this unprecedented level of fantasy. She says, we may now find the curious spectacle of a man privately at ease 15 stories above the city street, sipping wine and reading Trollope in a warm room furnished with fragile antiques and Persian rugs, dressed in a costume suitable for roping cattle on the plains or sawing up lumber in the north woods. Once, only women and children offered such visual effects. I think you'll see here, he's got this great Tom of Finland um, tattoo going on, which I like a lot. Um, so concurrent with the clone era, there were a number of different approaches to subverting gender codes in queer subcultural dress. In this postmodern period, the binaries of gender were ripe for a semiotic recoding. Gender fox styles in the punk and post-punk drag scene fused hypermasculinity with hyperfemininity. Younger generations of gay men may have rejected the clone look, um, particularly after punk, but continued its legacy of masculine imagery and physique into the 1980s and 90s, for example, with gay skinheads and rockabillies in the London scene. The gay fashion market was most profitably exploited in the 1990s with targeted advertising. From this period onwards, what were formerly distinct subcultural styles started to break down with a blurring of gay and straight style. It's been said of our current period that heterosexual hipsters appropriate so strongly from so many different gay subcultural styles um, that it's really difficult to distinguish gay and straight appearance. I'd say that the clone look is not out of place amongst today's heterosexual street style, for example. Um, and I think it's important here not to assume, though, that the reappropriation of a masculine gay subcultural dress by straight men represents necessarily an enlightened attitude towards sexuality, though, of course, as we know, attitudes are evolving. Um, as it's worth remembering that effeminate gay men as well as trans men and women are still frequently persecuted on the basis of their dress and appearance alone. In Patrick's work, looking at the Tom of Finland Foundation and its present residents through a contemporary lens, working as they are to preserve the legacy of Tom of Finland's work, but in my view also the fashion of his heyday, there is a twinge of nostalgic sadness. 
to the extent at least that the materials of Tom of Finland era fashion, rubber, leather, denim, combat boots, have lost much of their symbolic power as erotically charged fetish objects no longer radical, confronting, or subversive by today's standards. It's strange to think that something so profound as sexual identity should be subject to the irrationalities and change of fashion. So I wanted to put this question to you, is fashion so intrinsically linked to identity and indeed to sexual identity that a gay man today, or for that matter, someone who identifies as transgender or genderqueer, may feel alienated from their forefathers because they can't share the same passion for Levi 501s. It sounds glib, and of course it's not as simple as that, but I think it still bears considering. For one thing, fashion is an expression of our identity, but it's also a case of our identity being shaped by fashion. For another, as we've seen in the examples of attitudes to and expressions of homosexuality since the 18th century, sexual identity is fluid and a changing thing, and with it, so too is subcultural dress. It's incredible to think, however, that so influential was the Tom of Finland masculine imagery and fashion styles that accompanied it, that it has shaped so profoundly our idea of what a gay man looks like and dresses like so long after it was actually fashionable. Perhaps all we can say that separates the use of materials in Patrick Starr's work and Dale Harding's is not so much their symbolic associations as these do overlap, but their intent. Both feature materials that have erotic associations back to the 19th century, leather, lace, and buckles. In Dale's work, there's a heavy play on contrasting fragility with cruelty through use of delicate as well as heavy or abrasive materials. That's a really heady combination, but one that's pulled back from the realm of fetish fashion by its concrete historical references to the lived experiences of Aboriginal women and girls, as well as its re resemblance of traditional forms of Indigenous dress, such as the headdress we can't help but see when these lace collars are inverted, and of spiritual phenomena such as the halo. By contrast, Patrick's work relies on us appreciating the fetish status of certain materials and articles of dress from the rubber curtain that we pass through as we enter the exhibition that primes our expectations of this to the rows of leather combat boots we see in the film. The work, to some extent, also needs us to place the subcultural dress codes of gay men within a certain time. It helps, for example, to know that the clone and Leatherman looks were big in the 70s but had largely fallen out of favour by the 1990s in order to understand Patrick's relationship with the Tom of Finland legacy as an intergenerational one, where the artist is picking through the residue of this important subculture and understanding how it fits in contemporary understandings of self-representation and sexuality. I think there are complex manifestations of pleasure and pain in both works, as well as crossover ideas of genealogy, identity, memory, and social change. And I hope that a bit of fashion history has helped you as it's helped me appreciate them more fully. Thank you. I'm happy to 
chat more or have, answer any questions or hear comments from you. <laughs>